Hello, listeners. We're in our 12th week of a state of emergency in Thurston County. We hope you all are making your way through these times and that you have what you need. In a first for the Olympia Standard, this episode takes us all the way to Florida so we can gain some outside perspective on the serious issue of the decline of local journalism. And while we joke in this episode about our guest being the first without any connection to Olympia, we would be remiss not to give a shout out to one of our friends who has strong ties to Florida. While in our area we've only seen one death from COVID-19, the lives of many people have been touched by losing someone they love. Our friend Tracy, who lives in Olympia, lost both of her parents to the virus, who lived in Florida. Tracy, our hearts go out to you and your family. We're so sorry for your loss. We want to remind our listeners that, through all the mixed emotions created by this pandemic, and on top of that, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the riots across the nation, let's remember, we don't know the depth of loss and grief being experienced by the people around us. The world has been forever changed, and we're being changed along with it. He sounds so much more... The Proper, but tell us... Welcome to the Olympia Standard. I'm Danny Madrone. I'm Emmett O'Connell. This podcast is a calm, reasoned conversation about local issues in Olympia, Washington. Calm and reasoned. Yeah. Uh, calm. Okay. Newspapers are going through what is being called an extinction event. We talked about this as part of our first COVID episode in the coda to episode number 60. It didn't actually make the show, but you can find it on our Facebook page. We talked about two newspaper chains with local mastheads cutting hours. Since then, there have been even more cuts. Sound Publishing, which owns 43 newspapers in Washington, including the Everett Herald, has cut, 40, has cut 70 jobs. Our own local newspaper, which has been around for 150 years, has been struggling long before COVID-19. It seems to have been cut to the bone years ago. While they, while they have shifted to a digital-first newsroom where news doesn't have to wait for print to reach the community, they are also no longer a daily print paper, having stopped their Saturday print. So today we're wading deeper into this issue by going all the way to Tampa Bay, Florida, with all the conversation from within our community on what we can do to strengthen journalistic integrity, it seems like some perspective outside our bubble might be helpful. Today we're sitting down with Kristen Hare, who covers the death of media for the Pointer Institute and literally covered, covers death for the Tampa Bay Times. Pointer is a school for journalists that identifies one of their specialities as strengthening local news companies. So, Kristen, welcome to the Olympia Standard. Hi, um, we have to. We just have to say you are the first guest we've ever had on our show that has no direct connection to Olympia. What an honor! Maybe I should ask: Have you ever been to Olympia? I have never been to Olympia, although I was looking uh, at you guys yesterday on Google Maps to try to get my bearings. Um, I've been to Seattle a couple times, but I have never been to Olympia. So now I have to come when that is, you know, a possibility again. <laughs> yeah, when you're allowed to travel and hit us up, you know, we'd love yeah. to hang out with you. And and thanks for, for giving, uh, offering us your your outside perspective, uh, that which is what we were going for here. Of course. 
So Kristen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about the work you do? So I am uh, in this very strange position of being a journalist who writes about journalism. Um, it's a very meta job. And uh, I've been <laughs> doing it since 2013. Um, I, before that, I spent 10 years covering local news uh, at news sites, uh, newspaper and an online-only nonprofit in Missouri, in St. Joseph and St. Louis, Missouri. And I have a features and projects reporting background. Um, and I came and started covering um, the media for Pointer in 2013 and pretty quickly found myself gravitating toward the kind of stories that I saw weren't getting covered when we talk about the media. So, you know, the New York Times gets lots of coverage, CNN, the bigs always get lots of coverage and, and scrutiny, which I think is appropriate. Um, what, what I was missing was big stories about small places. So I pretty quickly started doing that. It started as, um, you know, kind of around news pegs. So when there was a big event, um, like Ferguson with the death of Michael Brown, um, and journalists started getting arrested. I know we're talking about this in a time when this is now happening again in Minneapolis. Um, oh, yeah. I read was, that this morning. Yeah, that was the story. Um, that I wanted to tell both on the ground, Pointer sent me to St. Louis, and from the perspective of local journalists. And so I kind of repeated that again and again with Orlando, after Pulse, um, after major mass shootings, after you know hurricanes, tornadoes, sort of every uh, event that you can think of, because the people who, the journalists that live in those towns um, and, and cover them are the people who were there before and who will be there after the national media leaves. And so a thread through all of those stories all along has been decline, particularly at newspapers. And um, so, you know, all of those threads now are coming together with the coronavirus when local news is more important than ever and is also more threatened than it's ever been before. Yes, that that term we keep hearing over and over again now more than ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even before COVID-19 pulled the rug out from underneath the economy, newspapers and the reporting business in general has, have been struggling. In a good economy, reporters were still being laid off. News media ventures were having a hard time finding a model that worked. Can you give us an overview of where the media industry is right now and how the pandem- pandemic has further hastened the decline in journalism? I think it's really important when we talk about this that we have to be specific that the the biggest declines are in newspapers. And there is a tendency Ah, when we have conversations about this and we talk about local news, and my inbox will be full of complaints from local journalists (laughs) if I'm not specific about this, Um, (laughs) local radio, local TV, um, independent journalism, online journalism, those those newsrooms uh, have not suffered from the same constraints and um, difficulties that newspapers have. Uh, newspapers have, have generally, although not all of them, suffered from the kind of the same set of struggles, which has just been, you know, decline, struggle, um, very, you know, kind of slow adoption of tech, and then um, a really slow adaptation to meeting their readers where they are. There are some examples of people, places that have done this really well. At the same time, there's been this consolidation, and you guys have seen it there with your own local paper, mm-hmm. of newspapers getting bought up by chain after chain after chain, and then the chains combining as the Gannett and the Gatehouse chains did uh, late last year. And um, and so you're seeing fewer local owners uh, and um what happens then is you get waves and waves of layoffs as they're trying to consolidate their businesses. So all of that leads to 
uh, March of this year, uh, when the pandemic really, I think everybody realized this is really happening across the country, not just in Washington state where you guys were among the first to have to deal with it. And, and the Seattle times and the other journalists up there, I think did a really remarkable job covering it. Um, and what has happened since then has hit everyone. And I think that's also really important. So what we've seen is businesses closed down, towns shut down, everything stops. And for, for newsrooms, whether they have diversified their revenue streams or they're still dependent just on ad dollars, that is an extinction event, right? That is at, at the very least going to push you to the brink of extinction. So the first thing that we saw was uh, my own paper here uh, in uh, Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay Times, was one of the first to cut print days from seven down to two. Um, and they did that to preserve the journalists in the newsroom who had just two weeks before been through a round of layoffs. Um, it started with cuts. We saw rounds of furloughs, layoffs, but it's not just local papers that this is happening to. It hit Alt Weeklies really hard. The Stranger in Seattle is a good example. Um, and it's hit radio. I have a couple examples of local public radio stations that have had layoffs, TV, uh, even the big CBS News laid off a bunch of people this week, uh, BuzzFeed, Vice, The Atlantic. Um, nobody has been safe from this. And I think that's another really important thing to point out. Is this has been bad for all media. Mm. So let's backtrack a little bit and talk more about the um, about. The, the chain element. So the, the Olympian lost its status as an independently owned paper in 1971. It's currently owned by the McClatchy Company, which also owns the Tacoma News Tribune and the Bellingham Herald and dozens of other uh, newspapers nationwide. McClatchy bought the Olympian in 2006 as part of what at the time was a major purchase of the old Knight Ritter newspaper chain. Can you walk us through uh, what's going on with the Olympian's owner, McClatchy? I, at this point, um, have been more focused on Gannett, which mm -hmm. just did a big round of layoffs that they were not public about. And so trying to track those down. And and there are all at the same time hedge funds, just 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 so that you have a sense of what the landscape is. There are hedge funds um, that own uh, some some newspapers, local newspapers, um, Alden Global and Capital Global. Capital is one of them. There are smaller, uh, harder to pierce organizations like CNHI, Forum Communications, and there's McClatchy. Um, interestingly, McClatchy is the only chain that has been allowed to raise funds as part of this COVID-19 local fund from the local media association. And they did that, uh, I was told, because they thought that McClatchy newsrooms had better ties to their communities um, and, and, and so far had had no layoffs compared to, in the pandemic, all of the other chains. But most places, most of these places have been cut to the bone. A lot of them have gone to a regional um, structure. So you'll have a regional editor and publisher, and you may have several states that are involved in that, um, that, that there's one editor in, you know, in uh, five hours away, that's the editor of four or five papers in the area. There is some sort of digital sense to this in that uh, there is a lot that newsrooms can do when they combine resources to cover major regional stories in ways they wouldn't be able to do if they were competing against each other. But fewer reporters, photojournalists, editors, copy editors, human beings, you know, in your community 
is fewer. And I think McClatchy and all news organizations, all newspaper organizations right now uh, have, have implemented this again and again. I found the other day I was researching um, a story about layoffs, which, you know, I've been doing for a very long time. This was two years ago, maybe. And I I had a lead about something like we've, they've cut to the bone. What else is there? And (laughs) here we are, you know, I think we're, we're, we're still, we're still doing it. I think specifically what I was trying to get, get this Mm -hmm. question with this question was, uh, um, uh, talking about McClatchy's uh, um, bankruptcy case, but I think I want to oh, yeah. zero in on what you were talking about in terms of cutting to the bone and then cutting further into the bone. I think one of the hard things we've been trying to figure out is at what point we talk. We know what a news desert is. It's a it's a it's an org, It's a community that's not being covered. But at what point do you can you say that your local news organization has turned into what's also been called a ghost paper? Yeah, I am really interested in. In, in finding the ghost papers and seeing how, uh, how, how communities perceive them. But, you know, you have to have a staff. There have and to actually, be- can, can I, can I ask you to just define what a ghost paper is? Cause yeah. you, you and Emmett are very like journalistic wonky. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was a new term for me when yeah. I was talking to Emmett, I was like, what is a ghost paper? <laughs> so ghost paper is a paper that exists basically in name only. And there may be one person like that is in the building if there is even a building, but the that paper is pulling in copy or stories, photos, you know, content from its sister p- publications or the publications that it's you know related to or from the Associated Press. It doesn't have much or any original reporting, and so it it, it appears that you have a local publication, but indeed Got you do not. Got so it. Yep. thank you. Yeah. So I think it's I think one of the one of the tragedies in all of this uh, is that the places that have done the best coverage of local newspapers are also struggling themselves. I'm going to answer your question, but I, I want to get to it in a roundabout way because the thing that that I think the coronavirus has shown us is that we all live in ecosystems and local news is part of that. Local news is part of an ecosystem and local news organizations um, exist hopefully together. And so what alt weeklies do better than anybody that I've ever found in seven years of covering the media is they hold the watchdogs accountable. They watchdog the watchdogs. And so often what you have is those publications calling foul on the appearance of, you know, when it looks like there's more and there's not, but all weeklies have been hit really hard. And when the coronavirus started, a lot of them almost instantly shut down because they're so dependent on events and ads that that is sort of their, 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 their lifeblood. So I'm just rambling now and I can't remember exactly what the question was, <laughs> but I think well, that, it, that, yeah, that it's, yeah. that it's, it's not just about the health of one single paper. If you have one paper, that it's that it's I mean that's good, but really what you're talking about is the competition between newsrooms. That if it's a uh, um, that if you have that competition, both papers are better. Here's what you, well, yes, and here's what I think about a lot. I live in a place where uh, there were two newspapers until a few years ago: the Tampa Bay Times and the Tampa Tribune. And the Tampa Bay Times, which Pointer owns, my 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 um, my company owns it. Um, bought out the Tampa Tribune. And so we went down to a region with one newspaper. And there are not news deserts 
out here as much as there are, somebody else coined this term and I won't take credit for it, but news donut holes. So, you know, I live in the suburbs. No one is covering my school board meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, you can live in lots of different kinds of places and not have anybody covering city council meetings, you know, shining lights into the kinds of places where we need accountability. And so the danger with ghost papers is it presents uh, it presents the idea that there is somebody, there are people on the ground holding um, holding people accountable when maybe that's not actually happening. They're just, it, it's just there for the purpose of selling ads and running the comic. So our local paper, the Olympian has been, their owner has been in uh, bankruptcy court for the last few months. And this seems to be um, an inflection point in the direction of the paper. Can you walk us through the, the issues at play and when we might see some um, resolution in this case? Sure. So my colleague at Pointer, Rick Edmonds, has covered this pretty closely. And what we're seeing now, I think what the latest is, is that there are two uh, asset management funds, Chatham Asset Management and Brigade Capital Management, who have offered to basically buy McClatchy out of debt, right, to take on their debt for 100% Mm -hmm. ownership. Uh, as it comes out of Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, and this would take the ownership away from the McClatchy family, mm-hmm. which has had it for, I think, more than 160 years. And can you, I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't think, I don't think we know anything more than this story in April. I just feel like the world has stopped in so many ways. Do you know any more than that? Is that the latest? Um, yeah, I do. Um, I'm going to just spitball okay. here. And so another thing to there's, there's actually, there's apparently around 20 offers on the table for, um, that may beat out the, the two asset management companies. The one is, uh, um, they, and they may deal with, um, with parts of the company because there's possibilities of breaking up what is McClatchy right now. Mm-hmm. And I think my fear, my fear is that these, uh, um, these asset management companies may actually take control. And one of them, Chatham, is uh, owns most of the debt in, Can- in Canada's second largest newspaper chain. And they've actually been making severe cuts in that one. It's called Post Media, and it's uh, mm-hmm. including shutting down 15 community papers in Canada. So the by mid-July, we may see some, uh, um, some actual decision and resolution in the bankruptcy case. And from what I understand, the resolution may be breaking up McClatchy into smaller regional chains, or this takeover by the uh, um, by the hedge funds, which could, if you look at their if their recent history in Canada, include shutting down papers. I mean, just to loop back to McClatchy, is there anything to be said about their stewardship of newspapers? I mean, in terms of chain companies, what has been their reputation? I don't know if I can answer that question very well. I just feel like it's all so muddied by. I I, I think that what they've done, you know, particularly with their flagship papers, the Sacramento Bee. Um, mm-hmm. the, the work that I know that comes out of McClatchy newsrooms is really powerful and strong. Um, but that, that there's a difference between the journalists in the building who are doing the work and the company itself, right? As a, you know, as a concerned community member, the thing to hope for and to fight for is local ownership, is to find somebody, a group of somebody's who will, um, if the, you know, if these newsrooms are split apart, 
can come and um, and take it over as good stewards interested in uh, the, the health of local news with the understanding that they still have to be businesses. Um, and that there are lots of examples of this. I mean, the LA Times is an example of this. Um, but I think the one that I think is maybe the most interesting is the Press Democrat, Santa Rosa. Um, and they won a Pulitzer a couple years ago and was I was really interested as I was reporting on them to find out that they you know, had gone from a corporation, they were on the kind of the chopping block to be owned by a hedge fund and a group of local investors stepped up and, and took over. Um, there are certainly complications with being owned by, you know, particularly business members in your community. And the, the newsroom has to be really clear about its standards um, and transparent about who owns it and sort of how they're going to, you know, how they're going to deal with that situation. But, um, you know, they are making money, they're hiring journalists, um, and, and, you know, the last time I talked to them, we're covering uh, wildfires um, and from a small newsroom in a really powerful way, which earned them, you know, a Pulitzer Prize. So I don't think all hope is lost. I do think uh, local ownership right now, when it's the right owners, is the best hope for local newspapers. It's, it's interesting that you say that, because there's already, even though... Um the Olympian is not locally owned. There's already this perception that, you know, that the, the, that there's a heavy business focus and there's, um, you know, there's actually a lot of apathy or straight up animosity towards our, 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 our towards the Olympian. Yeah. Uh, and the reasons that range from like long held resentments on how an issue is covered or an opinion article on a controversial topic, or just generally not trusting, you know, the media. Um, and at, but at the same time, we also hear people complaining about paywalls on articles in the Olympian. So clearly there's a need for the, in, for the information, even if people don't want to pay for it. So, um, you know, just to help uh, our listeners understand, like, why, um, you know, local journalism is so important. Can you talk about what happens in a community when we don't have a newspaper or, you know, as you as we've been calling it, um, a new we, we become a news desert? Right. Studies have shown and PEN America has a great uh, report about this that came out, um, I believe, this year. Um, Studies have shown that voter participation goes down, fewer people run for office, and we see a a sharp increase in the amount of partisanship that exists within a community because people are being so swayed by what they're probably watching on from the national news. It's really easy to get into a filter mm. bubble. And um, local news isn't concerned with uh, with that, local news is concerned with telling you what's happening in your community. And like I said, holding powerful people accountable for what they're doing, particularly for how you spend your tax dollars. Um, I did a piece uh, with a, a two playwrights who live in Dallas and they were, you know, millennials. They had never uh, thought much about their local news and they, they decided to embed themselves in the Dallas Morning News. And they spent years, I think three years, um, working on this project. And very quickly, both of them became subscribers of the Dallas Morning News. And they, I, I asked them, well, do you guys read the, read it online? How do you read it? And they said, we don't, we don't read it every day. What we're paying for is the woman who's going to go to city hall every day and sit in the back of the room and listen to meetings and tell me what's happening with my, my tax dollars. And so, um, there is, uh, an accountability that's lost. There's also, you know, remember, news organizations don't just cover news. They cover life. They cover sports. They cover, you know, schools. Um, they bring you features. There, I have a story out 
uh, and it's a, a grim story that I am adding to regularly about the newsrooms that have closed because of the coronavirus. And, I, and a lot of them have existed, you know, since the 1800s. And I found um, a letter to the editor in one of them. And this man talked about finding a file uh, after his father passed away, you know, a manila a file full of clippings of his entire life and the, the things that had happened. And, and here was this, this guy's history that the town paper had recorded. And so that is also lost that we lose community. You lose a place to mark the loss of the dead with obituaries, um, a place to uh, sort of have lively discussions, hopefully that aren't too muddied by, um, by rancor and, um, and, and a sense of identity. I think that chain ownership of papers has made that that feeling of distance from your your local news organization that much more stark um, because, you know, it doesn't feel like the place that's been there for 150 years. It feels like the place that's owned by someplace in another state. And I think that comes across. And there's there's another part of this that I actually just recently learned about, though I think Emmett's known about it. Um, I recently listened to this podcast um, called Starving the uh, – or it's, it's from Hidden Brain. The episode is called Starving the Watchdog, Who Foots the Bill When Newspapers Disappear? Mm-hmm. And it's about how local government bond rating goes down when there's not somebody keeping an eye on local government. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think the thing that, that happens just generally is there's nobody holding anybody accountable. And so shenanigans happen. And I haven't <laughs> heard I haven't heard that particular um, that particular episode, but you know, it's a great example in Bell, California, that the LA Times won a Pulitzer for, you know, and they there was nobody there covering it. A reporter found out and started digging in. Um, and there, there's another uh, example of sort of again the ecosystem approach that I wrote about um, last year. Um, do you guys remember the story of the sex cult Nexium? Um, that was out last year. Keith Ranieri was the cult leader. And uh, one of the actresses from, I think, Smallville was part of this. And that's Mm -hmm. why it made the news. And I I got a tip that the Albany Times Union and Albany, New York had been reporting on this guy for 16 years. And they'd been reporting on the cult. And, um, you know, a reporter found something fishy in meeting notes and started asking questions. And this went from reporter to reporter as that newsroom shrunk. They did this watchdog work and they continued doing it. And it wasn't until the New York Times wrote about it that, you know, the House of Cards crumbled, but they were able to write about it and get national attention, which then finally made um, a prosecutor do something in the state because there was this, you know, long institutional history of coverage of what uh, this guy and his funders had been up to. So, um, you know, sunlight, as journalists like to say, is the ultimate (laughs) disinfectant. The job of, of local journalists isn't to be liked or loved, um, but it is to tell people what's happening in their community and to hold to hold the powerful to account. And that uh, I did a story recently, and somebody a report for America a journalist who was going out to cover white supremacists um, in Appalachia, and he said something great that I'll never forget. He said, "Corruption trickles up." And it's the job of local journalists to catch it before it trickles up and gets up Mm. to the next level of government. Obviously, we're not always that great at it. It happens anyway. But I thought that that was a great way of thinking of the work of local journalists. Yeah, it was it was interesting to me that like it can actually impact a a city or um, a, a government's ability to to get 
funding for for uh, bonds for um, for infrastructure for facilities or for whatever like you know if 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 you know uh, if, if those who are lending the money look at your local government and they say oh you don't have a newspaper we can't even tell that you're going to be responsible with this your bond rating is down yeah. and that actually that that impacts people in ways that I don't think they would even think about you know in terms of journalism versus you know a new bridge yeah. for example i don't even th- i don't even think it's as direct as that i think it's the i think it's it's changing the decisions of local of local leaders to where they are not being watched so they're they're playing more fast and more fast and loose with the money they have available. So when the bond, so when the bond rating people come by, they're looking underneath the hood and they're looking at a financial situation that isn't as that wouldn't have been as sound if the newspaper had been looking over their shoulder the entire time. Right. Oh, I got it. Like the auditors come in um, exactly <laughs> and dis- discover all the things the journalists would have been reporting on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The shenanigans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, and the, the trend, and we're still seeing this now with the newsrooms that are closing down and the newsrooms that are shrinking, but the trend that UNC's um, reporting on news deserts found is that the places that are the most susceptible to becoming news deserts are rural, poor um, communities that can't uh, afford um, to lose that work or mm-hmm. to support it. And so um, there are some great examples, and we can talk about them, of new um, newsrooms that are covering their communities in different ways, but um, it is communities that need them most that often are the ones that become news deserts. And and a lot of times it's from this kind of, again, continued uh, conglomeration of, you know, media companies uh, and just cutting, cutting, cutting. This story that I've been doing on um, newsrooms that we've lost because of the coronavirus um, gosh, at least 12 of them are owned by the same company and they continue to call those closures mergers and they have just scrubbed the websites. I was able to capture some of it before it disappeared. And so none of it even exists anymore. And, and, and so these places now have to be covered by places an hour away uh, or more. Um, and I, mm. I, think that's, I think that's really a problem and something to be very concerned about. So let's um, let's move on to a little bit more context that our listeners probably need. So something very specific happened with advertising in the last 20 years. Newspapers in particular lost substantial revenue when advertising dollars moved online. Why are advertisers generally less attracted to traditional local publishers compared to platforms like Facebook or Google? So the narrative is that that newspapers, you're not wrong, you're correct, newspapers lost advertising to the internet, but they lost advertising to the internet because they had the monopoly until the internet came along. And the internet offered advertisers and, you know, big, small, you know, regular people who have businesses, um, people who want to take out classifieds, uh, a way cheaper and more effective way to reach people. And newspapers could not compete. They lost that very quickly. There's certainly lots to be said about the big um, tech platforms, um, Facebook, Google, uh, and the likes. But um, until then, newspapers were running an undisrupted monopoly for disseminating information. And when that changed, they weren't ready to adapt. Uh, And so their entire business model suffered. However, because 
so many people in certain a certain generation were still loyal readers because that was you know something that a habit they've developed through generations. Uh, they were able to keep paying for the most expensive product, which is the newspaper itself, um, until very recently. And now we see people moving online in droves and cutting print days. You know, it's a, something I update every day to the awful list that I have. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's so let's pivot here. Well, let's start looking towards like um, some new things that are happening. Looking towards the future, uh, one thing that has happened for the Olympian recently is that they received a grant from Report from um, R- Report for America, which is a really fascinating model for charitable donations going to support a. Uh, for-profit business, but one with a very important public charge. Their goal is to place journalism in local newsrooms to report on undercovered issues and communities. For the Olympian, a new reporter starts in June, and I think it will be June when this episode comes out. Um, and th- they're going to focus on one of our most challenging issues, which is homelessness. How do you think this will impact our local paper and the community it serves? And do you think this type of intervention in local journalism is sustainable or is this a first step for something different? So Report for America is um, something I think is really exciting. And after several years, I think starting to be a proven, one of many proven ways to inject new life into local news and and local mediums all of all you know different shapes and sizes. Um, I as a former Peace Corps volunteer really love the idea of service um, and around journalism and so these uh, reporters are taking on one to two year assignments in communities that have you know pitched for them. What's significant is that for young reporters in particular, and they're not all young, but they are all new reporters. But for young reporters in particular, when you're starting out someplace, you are probably going to start doing, you know, cops and courts briefs or, you know, breaking news. But the way that Report for America has structured itself is the money that they're, they're paying half of a reporter's salary, the community is paying the other half, right? And has to make a commitment to raise that money from the, from the company and the and the community, that they're going to cover something that's critical to that community. So for instance, the guy I talked about earlier uh, is covering white supremacy in Appalachia, right? That is a beat that is critically important. Um, lots of these reporters cover the environment. Um, lots of them cover uh, native issues in different parts of the country, um, race, social justice. Um, so this is watchdog reporting, and it's the kind of reporting that we have found people will pay for or support, whether it's coming from a newspaper or radio station or an online newsroom uh, that's a nonprofit, that that, that kind of work uh, is is what people want to pay for. It's what they're subscribing for and is critical to bring back to make your product valuable. One of the, I think, you know, you can see journalists lamenting this on Twitter, you know, all the time. It doesn't make sense to continue to cut the product that you're telling people you have to charge for, right? And newspapers as a physical entity have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. The content has to be good. We can't support local news because it's a public good. It is a public good. We should support it because it's it's good. It makes my life better. I like how it, you know, what it does for my community. And I think that Report for America is a really excellent approach to re-injecting uh, local journalism, really powerful local journalism, and to finding, again, ecosystems to work 
with, you know, how different organizations work together to cover things instead of doing it in a vacuum. So let's move on to let's move on to the Beyond Report for America. A perennial topic in Olympia is how the community can replace what is offered by the Olympian. These conversations are often fielded by people who do value journalism but see the death of the local paper as inevitable. There seems to be an idea that volunteers can replace what the what newspapers do, or that a new model can be developed that would garner more trust from the public and be able to sustain itself while producing the more in-depth reporting that people often crave. Are there any examples in the country where something like this has been successful? There are so many examples, and there are kind of all of the above. Um, It's hard for them to get attention. Um, The most, I think, well-known is the Texas Tribune in Austin, Texas, Um, and it has been around for more than a decade. It is a nonprofit newsroom. Um, that continues to grow and do just really excellent work online. They have created a lab to help other uh, newsrooms um, like them. But, you know, there's only one Austin. And I think it's really important as we look at models to think about, oh, what does this community look like ours? Could our community support this? Um, Another one similar to this is Berkeley Side in Berkeley, California. This is a for-profit online newsroom, and they do the watchdog investigative in-depth work, but they also do, you know, the, the bread and butter kind of journalism of what's happening today, what happened with the mayor, who said this, you know, covering meetings that I think is also really essential to the lifeblood of a community. Um, They held a direct public offering and raised more than a million dollars a few years ago. They continue to have a really diversified revenue stream, including events and a membership model. Um, The last time I talked to them about a month ago, people were sending in money every time they asked uh, and supporting them through this pandemic so that they could continue doing their work. Um, But not every community is a Berkeley. So they're are some other, I think, really interesting models. I did a story a few weeks ago about a town in Maine that lost its weekly paper years ago, and a librarian decided he was going to collect town news. You know, the Boy Scouts are having, a, you know, a car wash. Um, the library is, you know, having a, a resolution, come and vote, the, sort of these sorts of, again, uh really somebody called this once chicken dinner news, right? The kind of stuff you need to know um, is happening in your community. When he passed away um, last year, three or four members of the community stepped up as volunteers to continue to run that publication. Uh, And the library lets them print it for free. It was uh, a printed product, but because of the coronavirus, it is now online only. Um, They hope that it'll go back to a product. Another model that I'm really excited about and I think has a lot of promise is when universities work to fill news deserts or news donut holes or gaps that they see uh, either in their communities or around their communities. So in Lawrence, Kansas, a class at the University of Kansas um, got together a journalism class and they created, this professor created a class uh, that creates an online publication for the city of Eudora, which is like, I don't know, 12, 15 minutes away. And it hasn't had its own news for years. And, and it's been covered a little bit by the neighboring paper in Lawrence. And so now it has a team of college journalists who attend meetings and tell people what's happening and write features and write about the schools. 
And those reporters are currently working from their childhood bedrooms to tell these stories because their schools are closed. Um, and sometimes, you know, hundreds of miles away from Oklahoma. And they're reporting about what's happening in Eudora for the community of Eudora. Um, and uh, so I think there are some exciting things out there. Nonprofit online um, has been popular, you know, for a decade. The trick is finding funding to make it work. And, and I think we've seen that, you know, you have to start with people in the business uh, profession to do this. It can't just be the journalism. Interestingly, I think the other model here that is, that is promising has been um, kind of created by the Seattle Times with their, um, the philanthropic money that they get for journalism. And they use that to create the homeless lab, um, traffic lab, um, and, a, and a lab on housing. And harnessing local philanthropic dollars for people in the community who want things to be covered. Um, they've done this in New Orleans with the environment, with covering coastal coastal change. Um, those That's also really promising and is an injection of, of money and attention that brings in really critical journalism that wouldn't happen otherwise. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of wondering, you know, uh, in terms of some of these new uh, new ways of doing uh, reporting in communities, are there any risks, you know, when so, like some of your examples were volunteers stepping up and, you know, doing doing it themselves. Are there any risks with having people who aren't trained in journalism? Um, you know, we've got we've got some local productions uh, here that where, you know, it's it's people who are passionate about what they're what they're talking about, but there's also a very clear bias. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's you can you can also tell that there's like an agenda there. So that's one of the things that would, you know, I, I would worry about in terms of a volunteer driven thing. Um, could, could you speak to that a bit? I think it's important to always be clear about the difference between journalism and journalists and um, that people who aren't journalists can make journalism, but like Facebook isn't journalism, right? Nextdoor isn't journalism. I'm on both of those in my community and I get information there, but it's not the same as journalism. So I think any place that is going to be run by volunteers, which by the way, I do, I do think journalists like deserve to be paid and communities deserve to have paid journalists living in their communities. This feels like a last resort and hopefully a signal to other places that like, Hey, we care about this. We would support this and hopefully a stopgap measure. This, this, the standards of journalism, um, are commitment to transparency, um, you know, these, the, our ethics, our values, these things are pretty clear, clear and easy to find or should be from most newsrooms and aren't, I don't think are not too difficult to understand. Um, and I think we also have to recognize that journalists and newsrooms slip up too. Um, and yeah. so, mm-hmm. you know, I think if, if a place decides it wants to have volunteers tell people what's happening, there should be kind of a trust, but verify approach to that. And you know, I think we all consider w- where we're getting our information from, whether that's, you know, the local TV station that's owned by, you know, a big conglomerate that's conservative or, um, you know, an alt weekly that's owned by a very, um, a very liberal organization. So I am happy for any place to get information and news, but yeah, it's sticky, but it's sticky anyway. 
Yeah. Well, and we've actually come across that ourselves because we do this podcast and Emmett is actually trained in journalism. Yeah. I am not. And people people will say, oh, you guys are doing journalism. And we're like, no, you no. know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting information out to people. But, you know, we're not, you know, covering both sides of a story. Right. You know, we're, we're we just we just want people to have better conversations. So we're putting information out. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you, let me um, you were when you were going down your list of other models, you were you were. You said a couple of times, well, you know, not every place is Austin. You know, not every place is Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And um, for a community that is, for a community that's looking at, you know, what other models are out there, and deciding what kind of model would work for them, what would you, what would you suggest would be a good first step in terms of in terms of figuring out what's next? Yeah, I would I would look at the membership of two organizations that are devoted to this. The first is the Institute for Nonprofit News (INN). And um, I poked around before we talked. They have there's they have several members of nonprofit newsrooms that are in in Washington State. Most of them are in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Because the truth is, there's no one model. Every community is different and deserves a newsroom that fits it, right? So Flint Beat in Flint, Michigan, is a nonprofit model that isn't really asking the community to support it. It's looking for philanthropic dollars. And so there's lots of inspiration you can find. So you would find those at the Institute for Nonprofit News, which is inn.org. And you can go state by state and see their members and then click over to the websites. And they do a good job of telling you how long they've been around. Um, Nonprofit newsrooms in particular are really good about transparency, telling you where they get their money from, what their ethics and standards are. The other place to look is uh, Lion Publisher. So that's local independent online news. And that's for and nonprofit, both. Um, and you can find them at lionpublishers.com. And um, again, you can go by state and see what exists. Um, and these are both communities that, you know, are trade organizations for the newsrooms that are involved. So every year at their, um, at, when they had um, conventions, there would be new members who could learn about you know, tech status, business models, um, you know, the best way to work with Facebook and Google and all of these things. These are communities, I think, for people who uh, are running their own independent news organizations. And they're not all new. There are places that have existed, like Wisconsin Watch, um, that have investigative, you know, journalism that have existed for more than a decade. So there, again, is another great ecosystem to tap into to learn how to do this. Awesome. Well, Kristen, that's all the questions we have, um, and we really want to thank you for coming on. This is our, our first um, episode, like we said, with somebody without any tie to Olympia. The first one we've had to like coordinate with uh, time zones. Um, and uh, it, I, I just want to ask, you know, is there anything that we missed in our somewhat rambling conversation here that you that you think that our community should really know and understand or appreciate about local journalism? I think the biggest Thing that anybody who cares about their community should understand is that they deserve uh, to have their community covered with, with great local journalism, and they should hold their newsrooms accountable the way their newsroom should be holding the community accountable. That means that, you know, you let them know what you think, you call, you email, you reach out. If you like their work, you share it, you subscribe, you support. Um, don't be... Um, silent, a silent bystander, bystander. This is, I think, critical to protecting democracy. And, but we need citizens to take part, 
uh, and in as many ways as they can. All right. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, And to our listeners, this has been the Olympia Standard. If you have any thoughts, questions, ideas, um, commentary for the content that we're uh, covering here, you can reach us at theolympiastandard at gmail.com. You can also hold us accountable on Facebook at (laughs) The Oli Standard and at The Oli Standard on Twitter. And we also like to hang out on the Olympia subreddit. But you should not hold us accountable there. <laughs> if you like what we do and you want to support the people that support us, you should go to Olympia Pop Rocks because they're the people that actually do a lot of the work to produce this show. And they have a Patreon, so you should sign up to support them on a monthly basis. Yep. And an extra shout out for these times to Zencaster for helping us record podcasts at a safe distance. <laughs> Talk to you later, guys. <laughs>